Welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I am your host, Jake Downs. I'm a fourth grade teacher, PhD student at Utah State University, and someone who just wants to know more about reading. This podcast is about bridging literacy research and practice. Every episode, you'll hear from a literacy researcher about their work, why it matters, and how to turn it into practice in your classroom. Welcome. This is episode six of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs, and I'm very excited today to give you part two of my conversation on reading comprehension with Dr. D. Ray Reitzel uh, from the University of Wyoming. If you haven't checked out episode five from last week, make sure to go check it out. That It's a great conversation about the Common Core State Standards, the construction integration model of reading, how the two relate, So make sure to go and check out episode 5 before you do anything else. Before we get to episode 6, I just want to again welcome you to the Teaching Literacy Podcast and talk a little bit about what we're trying to do here. This is a place where we are trying to bridge literacy research with practice. There's a lot of great literacy research going on out there, and this is a forum where we try to bring to you uh, what literacy research is saying and how we can apply it in the classroom and what that might look like. So if you're someone who's benefited from the Teaching Literacy Podcast, please leave us a review on Stitcher or iTunes. And also, if you're a teacher who has used uh, some of the strategies that have been talked about on this podcast, drop me a line at teachingliteracypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear your experience, and I'm potentially looking to include some of those stories of how teachers have applied episodes into their classroom as some spin-off shows that could be maybe, you know, shorter five or ten minutes long. So without any further ado, let's get to the main event of our show today. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. D. Ray Reitzel from the University of Wyoming. He was at Utah State for a long time before he became the dean of the College of Education there. Uh, he was inducted to the Reading Hall of Fame, and in August of this year, he won the William S. Gray Citation of Merit, which is the ILA's highest award. Uh, he's done three decades of research on reading comprehension, and as he mentions in the podcast, the vast majority of his work is taking theoretical aspects aspects and putting it to task in real classrooms. So it's a fantastic conversation. Today we talk a lot about oral language and how oral language is so important to support in the classroom. Ideas for supporting it, uh, we talk, we go over close reading, and of course we end our discussion with what a good teacher is. So enjoy the conversation and afterwards stick around for my two cents on oral language and comprehension. Let's, I think that's a transition right there where, where you're talking about close reading. Let's get, in, let's get into practice for a few minutes. Um, so let's okay. talk about oral language, and then after we can talk about uh, literacy and information comprehension instruction. Uh, what is the connection between oral language and then reading comprehension? Well, we know there's a connection. <laughs> we know because there are multiple correlation studies that show that, Okay. The problem with correlation is always does A cause B or does B cause A or is C causing A and B? (laughs) And so correlation never tells us, never answers the question of is oral language supporting comprehension or is it the unique 
ability to comprehend and to take in information and make sense of it that causes oral language growth. That's just as plausible that it is cognition that is driving the oral language growth rather than the oral language growth driving the cognition. Or is it some innate ability we have yet to measure, that's C, that's driving both of them? That, my friend, has not been answered. <laughs> okay. So, so then that. do you recommend teachers uh, support comprehension, oral language, or, or both, and, and why? You know, my attitude is when I don't have clear causal data, never load yourself on one side of the or. Make it a both. Make it an and. Because chances are you might be wrong. <laughs> and then you've done all that work and wasted your time and theirs. So if you do both and rather than or, you're going to get at least 50% of it right. And you know what? Weathermen keep their job when they get the prognostications right half the time. So I, I think it's fair to have, expect at least teachers should go with that rule. <laughs> that's a great rule of thumb. I so, like the or. That's, that's good. That's a good visual. Uh, so yeah, how, can, so, how can teachers yeah, build ahead. stronger oral language in their students? Well, um, it is something that is, is absolutely missing from early literacy instruction. Okay. Um, and and it, it disturbs me. I, I mean, I work with a, with a proprietary company developing product for school use. And one of the products I keep trying to push them to do is to put together an oral language program <laughs> because teachers don't have any curriculum or any structure for how to think about developing oral language. Now, why do I like construction integration theory again? Because I think it gives a structure. Um, I think it says what's important for teachers to put in there. They should be spending time um, building kids' vocabularies because word meanings are the asphalt that you drive on in comprehension, okay? And then they should be working very hard to make sure that kids, once they can understand word meanings, that they can understand when you put those words together in a phrase or sentence, that they should be able to be able to paraphrase that represent that they know what that means with other words. Now, I don't see teachers doing much work in paraphrasing orally. Don't repeat it back. Don't memorize it. Don't be an echo chamber. Say it another way. That is really important to get those, those wheels turning up there, that cognition. And uh, they need to be working with connector words like, um, well, David Pearson's dissertation was classic in the 70s on this where he determined that if you left out certain words that connected certain sentences, you may have gotten a, a lower readability or grade level for the text, but then you raised the inferential burden on the reader because they had to infer the word you took out, which was the connector. And so that was a terrible thing in the end. We had short choppy sentences for kids to read where they had to infer that Johnny went to the doctor, he hit his head. Well, the because isn't there. You have to infer it and that could be a cruel trade-off for for some students because oh, inferencing is, is really complex I'd, I'd rather teach them the meaning of the word because you know yeah. Yeah. Teach them the word because and let them read too long read a longer sentence and you probably be better off so so you know teachers should worry about that they should teach how you connect sentences together what what does and mean what's that supposed to tell you 
What does but mean? Or so? Or then? <laughs> do you see what I'm trying to do here? Uh, or, you know, how certain words reference, um, antecedents refer to each other. We call it anaphora and cataphora. You know, if it says Susie and Johnny bought ice cream, they liked to eat it in the park, then you've got a they referring to Susie and Johnny. And kids can't make those connections sometimes. Again, that has to be taught. And then you have to get kids learning what story structure is and retelling stories um, and orally. And you know how great that is when you come to the place where you read a story and then you have to write one as a, or retell one? You got the structure built in then. So you can see why I'm a big fan of don't wait, don't mess around here. Develop this ability to comprehend text and be systematic about it using the construction integration theory when kids are young and, and the decoding piece isn't getting in your way. <laughs> so with uh, instructing for literacy and informational texts, how is instruction the same for those two areas and how is it different? Well, I mean, the first thing is uh, that, that makes it different is that when you're talking about conceptual load, narrative text has much lower conceptual load than does informational text, which means then you're going to have uh, uh, more familiar words in narrative text than you will in informational text. In, in other words, information text is going to introduce you to a lot more unfamiliar words or word meanings much quicker. And so that's going to increase the comprehension. Level. That's why early grade teachers have for a long time not done much with information text. Okay. Cause that's really hard. Um, what else is different? Well, the, the way the authors package stuff up, okay, to deliver it to the reader, to, under, to, to remember and understand and organize it. Um, story structures and omnibus uh, structure. And it gets more complex as, you know, you move up through the grades, but it's still basically there. You might have multiple story structures going on, like in foreshadowing or flashbacks or multiple plot lines going at the same time, but they're still basically following story structure that begins with a setting and has characters and so forth and so on, works to a resolution. So that's why I think teachers love narratives because it's, 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 <laughs> it's easier. It's easier on a million levels. And, and it's why I don't like to read narrative much to learn. Because I have to read so darn much useless words to garner one decent idea. <laughs> okay, and that may be just me, but I want I want loaded information. I don't want to have to wade through ten pages to get one idea. Uh, so the other side, of course, is uh, you're working with information text. The kids are going to have unfamiliar text, unfamiliar graphics that they have to uh, be able to comprehend. So you have this graphical understanding that isn't in narrative. You've got multiple ways of organizing text and sometimes intermixing those within the same text. So the complexity just goes way up. And I, I just think of, of teaching information text as like housework. It's never done. Because as soon as you get one figured out, you're going to encounter one you don't know. 
And then you got to teach this stuff all over again. <laughs> the, the entire comprehension process has to be gone through all over again. And I think my friend Nell Duke thinks that same way about it. Every new text, every new genre presents a new comprehension problem um, for kids to once again learn how to take up information from text because it changes. And that's a bit of, of where like disciplinary text, that, that same sort of theory is that, yes. you know, different fields talk exactly. in different ways and, and understanding the ways they talk is important or the way they discuss ideas is, is important to understanding, you know, how they Absolutely. Write. I mean, think about reading the Bible versus reading the 1040 form and tell me there isn't a difference. <laughs> <laughs> There's a pretty stark contrast there. Yeah, there you go. You know. So for teachers, can you walk us through a sample lesson of, of an idea of how you start with a with the standard or be, from the beginning of a lesson, designing it, you know, through the end, using the common core state standards and the CM, the CI model? Well, of course, the, one of the standards has to do with text difficulty. Okay, so a, a good teacher will look at will know their students, and we just have to. That's a, that has to be a taken for granted. A teacher will know their students, and or they will try to at least figure out with their students what they know, so that they're not giving them a text that's too complex to handle, but not so easy they're going to get nothing from it and feel no challenge. Okay, that's the sweet spot. And, um, and and then, of course, the Common Core standards say that there's a certain mix of text kids should get exposed to at certain grade levels, and that by the time we get up into the high school, it should be you know much more information text than narrative. So that's that's the first thing you've got to consider the text itself that you're going to be working with because that is the thing the kids are going to be working on with construction integration theory and the standards to uptake and learn from. So text selection is really, in my opinion, the first thing you got to do and get it right. Once you've selected a text and you've read it, <laughs> now I have to admit to my own sins here, okay, as a teacher. Uh, I remember one day sitting there with my, my core reading program teacher's manual over my lap in third grade, and I was supposed to be instructing a story that I'd never read. I had not read it because I could just read the questions out of my teacher's manual and, you know, look like I knew what I was doing. But as the story went along, I realized that, you know, the, I was picking stuff from the manual that was really not helping my kids because I didn't know what was in that text. I didn't know what affordances were there for teaching comprehension and what impediments were there that I needed to give kids strategies for when they hit them. Remember, strategies are to be used when text becomes difficult. You don't teach strategies and apply them in texts that are easy. It's worthless. <laughs> strategies are to help you get to be skilled. You don't teach skills. You teach strategies to get to be skilled. And um, so it's very, very important that teachers understand the text selection piece uh, and how to analyze text for its affordances and its impediments. Once you do that, then you look at that text through the eyes of construction integration theory and say to yourself, okay, what's the first thing that these kids got to get from this text? They got to get the key ideas and details. They got to get the microstructure. So what does that mean? Well, that means that you pick one of those anchor standards from that cluster and you teach toward that standard for that text. Okay. 
<laughs> you've got three standards in every cluster. Okay, so you're going to want to rotate through those based on the type of text the kids have to pick the best standard in that cluster to f to bring out the affordances and overcome the impediments in the text you've read yourself. Ah, that's a lot of work. <laughs> you've got to analyze text and what and what we've learned from some of the work that has been published in the elementary school journal uh, by uh, I think it was Anne Marie Palastar or uh, yeah, I think it was Anne Marie and her work and several others, um, Linda Kukin. They did a test of teachers' um, knowledge of how to analyze text for comprehension affordances. And uh, they found that 84% of the teachers couldn't do it. So our teacher ed programs have got to be much better at helping our students analyze text for comprehension affordances and impediments. So then you pick that standard and you teach to that standard and you read that text through that lens, okay? And you get those key ideas out of the text and you help kids get those. Once they've done that, then, you know, most teachers are done. But we've, had, we've encountered this thing called close reading, which means you read it again. Well, for what reason? Just because somebody told you to read it again? Uh, oh, or, and I love this idea, close reading. So would you just move up on the text and get closer? Um, you know, it's kind of silly. You know, and what I've noticed with teachers, well, when they do close reading, instead of going up in terms of size of text and thinking, they tend to narrow down into the details. Well, that was the first thing the kids had to have. So why read it again for that? You want to read it again to get the next big ideas, which is structure and craft out of that text. So you read it again, picking a standard from the cluster on author's craft and structure <laughs> that best fits that text. And so you move through that text, pounding away on what is the structure the author's got here. Now, if you're reading a narrative, most kids by first or second grade have got narrative structure down. You just got to remind them. So then you shift over to author's craft. What is the author doing here with this structure you already know? Is he doing flashbacks? Is he doing foreshadowing? Is he running multiple plot lines in the narrative? Do you see what I'm talking about? Uh, is, is the author, uh, you know, using uh, language to make a, an image? And what does it mean to image in your mind? So you go, you go up in terms of level of complexity and construction, not down when you close read. And so then once you've got that text base, having gone through the text at least with one close reading and you've moved through micro and macro, then it's time to, if you're going to read the text again, to talk about what is your interpretation or the meaning you make from that text as we read this again. And what is unique about what you think the text says, and what everyone thinks is common. You know, if you're reading a text about Beatles, when you get done, every, everybody in the room should say, this text was about Beatles. If that's not what's coming out, you got a problem. But what about Beatles? Okay. Well, I like to step on them, or I like to collect bugs, or they scare me when they creep out from the corners. You know, what is unique about your experience with the major concept of the text? And that's, that's when you start building that situation model. And then you 
have the kids then, you know, work beyond that using the text to create written summaries, to create diagrams, to create graphic organizers, to move that situation text now into long-term memory through that effortful work of organization and, and rehearsal. And so you can see that you could spend a bit of time on a text. And I've always been a believer that you're not done with comprehension until you have the kids compose. If you can take reading to writing, you've got it all the way home. I can read things that I can't write. It's really effortful for me to write. And so I always believe comprehension should always end with composition of some kind, some sort of creative composition. All of this might seem daunting for a teacher. We've talked about, you know, how the common core state standards align with construction integration model. How, what would you recommend for an elementary teacher who sees the value in this and is wanting to start, but doesn't know where or how to start? With again, if I'm if I'm teaching young children, I would start in oral language. Okay, that's where I would start. That makes it easier because you're not dealing with the reading piece; you're just dealing with the thinking piece with oral language, and that that makes it easier. So I'm I, I'm a big fan of moving from the known to the new, from the from the easy to the difficult, from the simple to the complex. That's called scaffolding, and you know you start there with your kids. Start where you think they're going to have some fairly good chance of success. I would start with narrative because it's easier. I would start with very simple models of information text. And there's a bunch of them out there. And my colleagues and I at Utah State have done multiple studies on how to identify text structures in information text, how to find models of simple ones that you can teach from. I would start, you know, very simply very simply, even if I'm teaching fifth grade or sixth grade, I'd find a first grade text that's very clear um, sequential structure, very clear descriptive, very clear problem solution. Okay? And you're going to have to use the framework of the standards like I talked about. You're going to start with a standard from cluster one. And you're going to work on standards-based instruction. And most teachers know what that means. They get that. But it's got to be focused on helping kids get from the text, learn from the text, and not too much front loading. And then move through the next one, which is simple, easy models of text structure. So that you know the kids have got it. You know, these, these darn core programs, what are the, I was a observing one time in a school in southeastern Utah, a teacher just tortured herself and her kids by following the teacher's manual because she was reading the book, the, the story, The Boy Who Cried Wolf. The teacher's manual said that the kids should be working on the comprehension skill of cause and effect. Well, cause and effect is a, is a text structure embedded in information text. It is not text structure for a narrative like The Boy Who Cried Wolf. Is there a problem in narrative text? Yes. There's multiple attempts to solve it in a resolution, but it's not cause and effect. <laughs> so this poor teacher was trying to force this structure on a text that just wasn't working and the kids couldn't figure it out. 
you know, it's just so important that teachers start with one easy thing to do, and that's narrative. And, and, and they know this intuitively. That's why they like narrative. Move it through the macro, that second structure, that second tier of clustered, uh, I think it's five, six, and seven, or no, four, five, and six. Anchor standards, pick one of those that matches the text well and teach, again, standards-based and do a close reading with it. Then once you've done that, you move it up a notch and you start talking about, so how do you, what do you take away from this text? What, what is the model you've created from the situation in the story? And what is, what is, what do we share? Okay. You know, it's about a boy. It's about a wolf. It's about a, you know, making a false alarm, you know, uh, what is that like? Well, you know, yelling fire in a theater, you know, <laughs> when there's not one, um, that kind of thing. So the kids start to, you know, get the idea that you're trying to build understanding. And then when you're done with that, then how do you re-represent it? You know, we call these heuristics, okay? How do you re-represent your knowledge in a new way? Okay, some people would call this transmediation, another term I've seen, to re-represent symbolically, you know, act it out, sing it, you know, but rehearse it in a way that you can keep it as a kid. And I think if you start developing that routine in your lessons and just practice that over and over again, you can get to be a pretty darn good comprehension teacher. Because what you're not doing is, oh, um, I think I'm going to use graphic organizers with this one. Oh, I think I should probably do literal level questions on this one. You know, that is not going to build a full model of comprehension. It's going to be a random throw spaghetti skills at the wall and see which ones stick. And that's the difference. <laughs> Pure and simple. One is systematic, theoretically consistent, builds to a full knowledge of the text, gets gross knowledge in kids. And the other one is a random flock shooting of classrooms with random skills and strategies. And, and, and we hope to get really good systematic outcomes out of that. Dr. Reitzel, it's been, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, last question sure. for you. What do you think makes a great teacher? Oh, boy. Oh, man. That's a tough question because I think, I think the, the, the job of a teacher is just so complex. I mean, I just, the, the more, I've, the longer I've been in this profession, the more admiration I have for those really great teachers I see. Because it is enormously complex to understand what it means to help another human being learn and, and, and benefit from just, you know, being in the schooling setting. There's so much teachers have to do. There's relationships, which, you know, we have to have, you know, the old saying of don't tell me how much you know, show me how much you care. We all know that. First thing teachers say when, when they're asked, you know, what is it that made you want to be a teacher? The first line out their mouth is always, I love kids. Well, quit telling stories. Sometimes you'd like to knock them upside the head. You know that, you know, <laughs> yeah, don't always love kids. But what do good teachers really do? They're focused. They know what they want to have their students accomplish. They're goal-oriented, they're outcomes-oriented, and they are brisk, 
uh, their pacing is brisk. They're, they're, or they're organized. They are ready to teach. You know, they have a lot of, of information in their heads that they carry with them to adapt uh, instruction as they go. You know, what we're finding in our research, now I'm going to switch to teacher education research because I'm, you know, I'm a dean now. And what we're finding in our national studies now isn't that our students, when they graduate as teachers, can't manage a classroom and don't know how to relate to kids. What the newest data are showing from Deans for Impact is that they can't design and deliver rigorous instruction. But when you ask them what they're weak at, they think they're good at doing that and bad at classroom management. So their perceptions are askew from the reality when they're directly observed. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> That's but I think really great teachers are hard to find, and it's darn hard work, and we don't pay them enough, we don't treat them with enough respect, and we don't have enough value in society for a quality teacher who knows how to produce learning and success in children, not coddling them, not telling them they're good when they're not, not giving them what I call cotton candy feedback. You know, oh, you're so good. I love the way you try. Well, you know, that's not feedback. That's praise. And some of it's not very useful. Real feedback is, no, you did not get that idea. Now let's go back and figure out how you came in. Let's put a strategy to work here, and it's called. <laughs> you know, So... Yeah, teachers are such incredibly important people in our world. And it saddens me greatly that they have come under such fire. But also, they have to know an awful lot. And they need a lot of support. And we're not giving it to them. Dr. Reitzel, thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. A great big thanks to Dr. Reitzel for coming on the show. I really appreciate him taking the time to talk about his book, Young Meaning Makers, Comprehension in Grades K-2. I hope you can see that even though we talked quite a bit about K-2, a lot of what we talked about can apply across many grades. And I can honestly say as a fourth grade teacher, that book has deeply influenced my teaching and the way I approach teaching the Common Core State Standards, the way I think about comprehension in the classroom. So, yes, the book's for K-2, but truthfully, uh, I think anyone who teaches the English Language Arts Common Core State Standards would benefit from reading that book and thinking about the concepts that are discussed in it. So, for my two cents, the first thing I want to talk about is the power of oral language. And this is something that my eyes have been open to in probably the last year or so, is when I am teaching students to read in my classroom, the basis for that is oral language. Students need to have the capacity to understand and to be able to speak about it in order to construct any real meaningful reading comprehension. Perhaps my favorite quote of the whole podcast was when Dr. Reitzel said, word meanings are the asphalt of comprehension. That made so much sense to me that in order for students to be able to comprehend, they first must be able to understand individual words. And so when he talks about what that means for teaching vocabulary is that first it's 
understanding the meanings of individual words. And then once students understand the meanings of individual words, we need to start helping them make cross-text connections. So he talks about signal words such as however, first, second, third. And then as students can be able to start to piece those words across the text together, then construction of knowledge is happening through the reading comprehension process. And then that's where paraphrasing comes in. Where in paraphrasing, we're not looking for the student to repeat it back word for word. We're not looking for a retell. We want the student to tell us what's going on in the text, but to be using their own words mixed with words from the text. And when Dr. Reitzel talked about that, it made so much sense to me about that's this process of starting from the basic structure of the text and building up towards a situation model. That eventually the student has to start putting in their own words and their own background to the text to make that situation model in the process of comprehension. And the second thing I wanted to talk to you about, my second scent, is about close reading. Close reading is something I feel that everyone kind of does it, but I think everyone's doing it in a little bit different of a way. And in my area, we just kind of used close reading as let's read the text multiple times and we're going to look for something different each time. And not necessarily that's a bad way of doing it. I think that's probably a fine way of doing it. But as Dr. Reitz was saying, that if we can use close reading to follow the construction integration model of comprehension, we're likely to have greater student outcome. So what that means when we are close reading is that rather than starting from higher level ideas and then working down into the specifics, we need to start with the lower level text ideas. So starting with individual words, cross-text connections, ideas within paragraphs, and then building up to the general gist or summary of what's going on with the text. And so again, this is a great example of how to use theory into your practice, is if on the first read, we're watching for microstructures, so meanings of individual words, cross-textual connections, things that are residing within a paragraph, and then on the second read and the third read, we're working up across larger ideas, across paragraphs, to build a situation model of what's going on in the text. To me, that seems like a much more powerful way to be doing close reading rather than my kind of spaghetti-on-the-wall method, to, to borrow Dr. Reitzel's phrasing, of close reading, where we just were reading it each time, and each time we're looking for a slightly different idea, and I think that we're doing it okay. To be able to have a framework for thinking about close reading, um, I think would be a lot more powerful in classrooms. So I hope you all don't mind about me using my practice as a case study, but that's what I have to work with here is that I'm trying to see what research are saying works and then I try to apply it in my teaching. Thank you for the listen today. If you enjoy what you're hearing on the Teaching Literacy Podcast, please tell a colleague about this podcast that you're listening to that's helping to bridge literacy research into practice. And if you're a teacher that and you've benefited from listening to the podcast, please drop me a line at teachingliteracypodcast at gmail.com and feel free to leave us a review on Stitchers or iTunes or wherever you are getting your podcast from. So thank you for the listen and Next week, we'll be talking about how to use morning meeting to help support early writing with preschoolers. It's a great conversation. I'm excited to get some writing episodes on the show, and it's one you won't want to miss. So this is Jake signing off from the Teaching Literacy Podcast, and until we meet again, let's all go and teach reading just a little bit better. 
Thanks for listening to our conversation today. Remember to check out the show notes for more details. If you have feedback or a show idea, feel free to email me at teachingliteracypodcast at gmail.com. This is Jake with the Teaching Literacy Podcast, and until next time, let's go and teach literacy just a little bit better.